All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, t- this is going to be really, really, really cool. I'm very, very excited for this conversation. Today we have with us Mr. Krista Decker. He's uh, the main uh, writer, editor uh, of a really cool website called Low Tech Magazine uh, that's also been produced into some books. Uh, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that and talk about that. Um, I followed this site. Uh, for I don't know how 10 years or something I don't a long time and every time an article comes out I'm like so excited to read it it's so well researched you know there's loads of footnotes it's really really insightful and so I've been very excited to to talk to you Chris um, so just to kind of start us out and give us a jumping off point um, let's talk about one of the the things that you've put together most recently which is kind of a, a practical how-to guide and an explainer for setting up small uh, solar power systems and different configurations of solar panels and batteries or not batteries and kind of how to set it up with some really nice drawings and sketches that explains all the components and stuff like that. And um, I saw that, I thought that was really cool. And I I, I realized I had, you know, I've helped friends maintain their off-grid solar uh, projects and stuff before, but I hadn't really had much experience piecing together my own little solar system. And so I, I thought, man, this is really cool. It seems like really straightforward. I'm sure I can figure it out. And so, um, and we don't, we have a, we have a small farm here. We have a, an old shack that we converted into a barn and it doesn't have any lights in it or anything like that. And we're about to go into the season where our sheep are having babies and stuff. And I was like, man, it'd be really nice to have lights in the barn this time of year, uh, you know, just to check on the sheep at night. Uh-huh. And so just using your website and your guide, I, I cobbled together a little solar powered light system. So now we have lights in our barn and it was easy. And I really appreciate you putting that together. Um, I, you know, when you put together these kind of how to explainers, I think it's really, really valuable. I hope people are telling you how valuable it is because a lot of times to, for, to, for someone to do something, you just need a little bit of confidence that you can do it, that you can figure it out if you haven't done it before. And that's something that somebody with like little or no experience can look at and say, okay, I basically get the idea now how to piece together these components of a system. So anyway, thank you very much for doing that. Maybe um, we can start there. You can describe that a little bit and the different modules that you've put together. And um, yeah, and then we'll just go from there. Okay, well, thank you for a very nice introduction. Um, I started kind of experimenting with with solar power in 2016 around that time uh, because I yeah I like to practice what I preach and I like to use the technologies that I write about and the thing with solar power is that um, the kind of conventional solar system that is that you hear uh, everyone talking about actually requires you first to be like the um, yeah to own the building to to have if you rent a place it's not gonna work and also that you're living in a single family dwelling because you need the roof and of course in an apartment building when you have like from the moment you have uh, like say more than three or four floors then yeah the the roof is not gonna do it and uh, also what what if you're renting and you want to you're not sure you want to stay um also it requires a lot of financial investment the the kind of conventional solar um installation so i was specifically trying out to to find out if if it's possible to actually 
um, have a low tech approach to that so that people who rent a place, who live in apartment buildings um, and who don't have much budget can also start with solar and go pretty far, actually, as, as I demonstrated. Um, so I'm still connected to the power grid um, basically for legal requirements. So what I can. Um, so, yeah, what I did is I put a lot of solar panels on my balcony and on my windowsills and that kind of um yeah provides me with enough power to uh, do most of the stuff in my house except the cooking which is electric and then um yeah say the washing machine stuff like that and the, and the fridge these are of course big energy users and the cooking fire i could solve it with um say a fire on the on the balcony like a wood stove but that's simply not allowed so um i cannot really go all the way but i did lower a lot my um, electricity consumption and more more importantly than that i became very much aware of how renewable the possibilities and the limits of of renewable energy and and one of those limits is obviously when yeah at night there is no energy and then if it's, if it's cloudy it's also very little uh, power production and then you can um, find all kinds of ways to to deal with that. And um, as you say in the in the manual, I kind of compilated all these experience that I gathered over the the last years. So from the systems that I built in my house, and then also the system I built for the for the website, which is solar powered. And one of the things that struck me as very interesting is that. Well, what, what becomes pretty clear from the moment you have your own solar systems is that the batteries are the problematic part. So that's in terms of um, of financial investment, like the battery, when you buy everything at the start, it doesn't really show because the price of the battery is more or less the price of the solar panels. But then the battery after five years needs to be replaced and the solar panels last for 30 years or, or even longer. We don't even really know. So when you start calculating how much money you spent over the the life of the whole system then yeah it becomes pretty clear that the battery and the charge controller that's where where uh, the big costs are so i for the one of the last articles i did uh, the calculation and it's about 80 90% of the total uh, costs of a solar system and that's not just financial but also energetic so the the energy you have to invest in a, in a solar system goes mostly to the energy storage. And then there's ways to kind of lower that footprint by, um, say, rather than trying to use renewable energy to, to kind of hold on to this idea that you always need to have access to all the energy that you, you possibly can may need. You could also do it differently like it happened in the early days like before the industrial revolution basically that you adjust your energy demands to the energy supply which is based on the weather because that's wind power solar power whether you like it or not uh, they depend on the weather while fossil fuels are a dispatchable energy source you burn them whenever you want and that's how we got to uh, an economy and a, and a lifestyle where we take it for granted that there's energy for 24 hours a day and 365 days a year. 
And so when I investigated like the history of renewable technology uh, energy, I find, found out that that was how people did it. Like the the Netherlands, where they had um, all these these thousands of mechanical windmills that were doing all these industrial processes. It was basically a huge factory powered by by wind, but there were no batteries. It just the whole thing. It operated when it was windy, and when the wind uh, was gone, then well, they just stopped working and they did other stuff, and then they came back when the weather uh, got better again. And that inspired me a lot in all the stuff I built afterwards, in the sense that um, you can really save a lot of money and a lot of energy if you limit the energy storage and if you accept some days per year and that's obviously in winter time that you don't have enough energy so there's now like a few days ago i was in the dark and then yeah you, you can consider that a failure of my system but i'm like well i still have always enough um energy to to make a little bit of light so i can still read for hours if i want until the morning if i want so what's actually the big deal i mean that's those days that are maybe 20 30 days a, a year um yeah i cannot do whatever i would be able i don't know i, I cannot do something that requires a i don't know like printing for example if i want to print a version of my article i need to do that when the sun shines and that kind of becomes a way to uh, plan my work around the weather like okay tomorrow is sunny i'm gonna print and then i'm gonna sit there and i'm gonna work on that on paper and then i don't need energy so that i found very interesting that when you build systems with limited energy storage you quickly find ways to to work around that and and actually go off the grid or partly in my case for legal reasons but um with very little money very little investment very little energy invested also and then i came across the living energy farm which is like um, a community in i think virginia it, it, it is in, in the us and mm. they really took that to the extreme in the sense that they have a whole um, like a communal uh, co-housing project with a whole farm and a workspace like a, a metal workshop and it all runs on solar power but with hardly any batteries so they have some batteries for the lighting um in the in the household but like for instance the whole workshop which is quite uh, extensive like it's not just a hobby shop it's like they built uh, ovens there and it only operates when the sun shines. So it's solar panels going straight to um, to the tools with some uh, voltage converters in between. And they basically work in the same way as the medieval um, uh, workers did in the Netherlands. So when the weather is optimal, they operate their workshop. And if not, they do something else. And so I think Chris, if we... Chris, we, just, uh, we actually just interviewed Alexis from Living Energy Farms. Oh, really? Oh, yes, that's and... I believe that episode was just published today. So, okay, yeah. cool. your your episodes are probably going to be kind of paired up. So it's we didn't intend this, but we're a little bit on a theme right now. So, so I think so. I, we we should definitely keep talking about the solar stuff that that you've worked on, but we'll, we can kind of expand out more from there into more you know low tech investigations that yep. 
but I want to, I have, a, I, I definitely have a couple questions to go, but I want to see if Simon wants to, to jump in here. Yeah, sure. I, um, I wanted to ask you about the way that you marry like the high tech of the web with like your, your low tech interests. I think first one of the most interesting thing is most of the people that I know that are into your work are also like high tech workers, which I find fascinating. Um, I think there's lots of inspiration in there for people uh, and, and really it's good for us to think about, you know, potentially the waste or like the how we are not in sync or rather out of sync with um, the systems that power everything. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, how, how did you come into this? Like what what fires you up about low tech and what got you interested in it in the first place? How it all started? Well, I was actually, uh, let's say, a high tech journalist for 10 years before I started low tech magazine. With a high tech journalist, I mean, I was I was the typical freelance science and tech journalist for uh, newspapers and magazines in Belgium. In my case, I was still living in Belgium. And so they send me to all these, uh, every week I had to go somewhere that some guy usually uh, invented something or solved some world, world problem with technology. And I had to write about that. And after 10 years, I was like, okay, but uh, every time you ask some critical questions to these people, then they it basically all falls apart, these techno solutions. Like... Um, yeah, I, the, the one that really got me uh, thinking very hard was the one on alga fuel. Like the, I went to interview this guy uh, who made alga fuel for, for airplanes. And then if you ask them, well, how much energy you actually put into the process? And it's like, yeah, well, it's actually more than comes out. <laughs> oh. But then what's the point, man? And And yeah, this whole hype has been, I mean, it's gone. Nobody talks about that anymore. And so if you kind of work in, in this report about these technological solutions, after a while, you start noticing that there's, there's like a hype and then everybody talks about it and it goes away because it doesn't work. And then there's a new hype the day after and it keeps going like that. So I was like getting really critical about us always thinking that there is uh, a, techno a technological solution to a problem often it's actually a solution looking for a problem like with artificial intelligence like yeah why do we need that I, I don't know i'm still not nobody tells me this but it's like we have it so we need to kind of use it for for something so it's really literally a, a solution looking for a problem that doesn't really exist and that combined with the fact that as a freelance journalist, at least in Belgium and at least in that period, it was not the most attractive position. So I was working very hard and earning very little. And so when I moved to Spain in 2007, all these things kind of came together. And I, I just woke up in the middle of one night and said, I'm going to start my own magazine and um, I'm going to just turn it on his head. And rather than only talking about the newest technology that will save us, I'm going to look to the past and actually prove the opposite. Like, if you want solutions, don't count on new technologies. Just look at the past for inspiration and you will always find it there. And at the same time, it's not about going back to the past, uh, which is, of course, also impossible, but more like learning from it. And that's why I also use, I'm not against high technologies, like my website is obviously not um, a pre-industrial technology, but 
I kind of treat it like it as if it is a sailboat or a windmill. That's how it operates. The, 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 the concept behind it is like you have a, a modern technology a website, but it's just as dependent on the weather as a sailboat or a windmill. And so it's playing with these kind of high-tech, low-tech combinations that I think it's very interesting and much more attractive than just telling people like, hey, let's go back to living as if we did in the Middle Ages. So t talk a little bit more about, <clears throat> so you've migrated your website. It used to be just a normal website hosted in the sort of usual way, and then you've migrated over, and now it's completely hosted in a sort of independent way and all solar powered, or maybe describe how that works. And uh, yeah, so indeed, for for many years, I had like the typical uh, website hosted somewhere. Um, it was not WordPress, but Typepad, but it's pretty similar. And at the same time, I was not really, I mean, it was not a fantastic website, but it worked. I could do it myself. And but I didn't really realize that it had a huge footprint, even me, like um writing about uh, energy use of the internet and so on i i had actually never really made the link like but how sustainable is my website and so in 2018 i got this offer from two uh, design students from RISD in in new york to make a new web design because they thought it was very ugly and i agree <laughs> it was a very <laughs> ugly website i'm not definitely not a designer and so they came to Europe and yeah, in the beginning it was a bit like, okay, we're going to make you a, a better looking website. But pretty soon from that came the idea like, but why don't we go uh, further and try to make a website that's actually in line with the philosophy of the magazine? Could we build a sustainable website? What, what would it look like? What would it be? Uh, is it even possible, you know, because, um, there's people saying like if if the energy crisis comes then the internet is the first to disappear and stuff like that but i was thinking like well maybe but maybe not and to my surprise we found the inspiration as always in the past so we just looked back to the um, to the early days of the internet well what actually happened one of them came at the day when showed me a website like look we we made this and i was immediately in love with the design and i asked where did, where did you get it from and she said we yeah i just copied the first website ever made i took the design of the first website ever made which is still online from the this swiss swiss laboratory and she started building on that and kind of following all the design principles of this first uh, website ever made. And so we obviously made some changes like the, the internet in those days was a purely a text medium. There were not even images, let alone videos. So that was a bit too radical. So rather than that, we found inspiration also in a, in a compressing, a compression technique from the 90s, uh, dithering that was used for the video games. So that we then used for the images. And we basically made the, the most lightweight website that you can imagine. And why did we wanted to make it so light? Because I had this idea of like, yeah, I wanna run it on solar power. And um, I that's if you wanna do that, then if you would do it with a normal website, you would need a huge solar uh, installation and, and batteries and 
for which I don't have the space. So the challenge was to make such a tiny website that it could run on a solar panel that fits on my balcony without taking uh, all the space of the balcony. And that's what it be became. And, and now, like five years later, we kind of already completely rebuilt it because it became too big for the original software we used. And it's been running for five years, actually, as smoothly as you can imagine. I mean, I had many websites, but never a website that was so easy to maintain. It's a static website. It's You cannot hack it. Uh, not much can go wrong. It's just when the sun goes down. So it has a battery, because mostly because of readers in the US. Otherwise, you would all have to get up very early to read Low Tech Magazine. So it has a very small battery that gets it through the night, but when it gets when the weather gets bad, then then it's it goes down and it's just like the windmill or the sailboat, it stops working and you're gonna have to do something else. You're gonna have to come back another day. And um, it's about like twenty days a year that it's offline, mostly now in in winter again. So <clears throat> this is really interesting. Um, I think, and 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 I I think maybe one of your articles, basically on the 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 footprint or the energy demands of the of the internet and the trends. So maybe elaborate this a little bit more, because yeah. So what you've done is you've kind of gone back to an earlier version of the internet when you know the the processing speeds were much lower. You know we didn't have streaming videos and all this kind of stuff all the time. And of course, you know, you think about the internet, it's easy to think, oh, everything's in the cloud. It's kind of this weightless thing. But in reality, the energy and environmental footprint of internet and all the associated technologies is absolutely enormous and, yeah. and growing because what, what do we want to do? We want to be able to watch Netflix on our phone. We want to stream video and watch YouTube and do all this, watch this podcast and that sort of thing. So talk about how... Um, the development of all of these features, you know, and the rapid pace of the development of all these features that we enjoy from the internet is expanding the footprint and the energy intensity. I just I try to try to elaborate that point because I think it's something that maybe yeah. you don't think about that much. <clears throat> yeah, so it's for since ever since the internet came, it has been kind of promoted as a as a sustainable alternative to to physical activities and services. Uh, and so we, because of that, like the, for example, you uh, you download music instead of buying a CD, and then the idea is you drive to the the music shop and you buy a CD, and then you come back, and that takes energy, and 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 the internet is in the clouds, as you say, it's just floating around there, it's not using anything. But of course, that's a myth, because the internet is just like anything else; it's a it's a massive infrastructure that is real that consists of metal and copper and plastics and 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 a lot of fossil fuels and so um that is uh that's the first thing by now people kind of get that that the internet is not an immaterial thing but um that it doesn't really stop the 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 um, the energy use from it keeps growing and it keeps growing really quickly and and that has to do with with mainly three trends that um we all in the design of the website we made we kind of go against these trends so the first is that the content on the internet is increasingly uh, heavier or heavier or fatter or whatever kind of metaphor you use 
but you can measure it very precisely in like the average uh, download of a website is now uh, three, four times what it was 10 years ago. So it's just a lot more of um, zeros and ones that you have to download to see the content. And that actually has to do with the fact, also what you refer to, that um, in the early in the early nineties we had very slow internet connections. We had not that that very powerful computers, and so every website was a sustainable, lightweight website because it was the only way to 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 allow people to access them. What happened, of course, is that since then, uh, computers got ever more powerful and uh, internet connections got faster and the website uh, designers evolved with that and they started building heavier and heavier websites. They started including images and videos and a lot of kind of coding crap that should not be there. And not just that, like also these videos and images have increasingly higher resolutions. It's a, it's a trend that keeps going. And that has become pretty much absurd. If you now, like uh, some days ago, I received a, a photo from um, a professional photographer and I wanted to upload to upload it. It's like 20 megabytes is now like what comes out of a digital camera. And then people upload that onto the internet. Well, when you are going to watch it on, on a phone, you have like the image quality of a cinema screen that <laughs> for watching it on your phone. So it's completely ridiculous. But there's nothing into the infrastructure built in, like even in WordPress, like WordPress could say like, hey, man, what what are you doing? Like, what are you thinking? You're uploading a 20 megabyte, megabyte uh, image. So that's one thing that this this kind of what you also see in other technologies like cars. If you compare the, the car of today with the car of 20 or 30 years ago, like, yeah, that's like it's twice as or three times as heavy and and powerful. And. The second trend is the fact that we are increasingly online in terms of, of yeah time. So in the 90s, what we did when we went on the internet is like you go to the library or to the office or maybe at your, your desktop computer at home. The internet was really like a place. It was at a certain spot in your, your house or, or in your city. And then you, you dialed into the internet through a very slow connection that you had to pay by the minute on top of that. And so uh, the way we used the internet was very different. I still remember, I was already a journalist then, um, that you write all these things on a paper that you need. You go to the internet, you have two hours, you pay for it on, in the internet shop, and you download everything you can. Then you spend at home, you, you, you spend going through this information, and you do another round of research. That's how it worked. You So the offline was a kind of uh, a part of the time you were online and then the rest of the time you were offline. Obviously, things have changed. We now have internet connections that are not just um, everywhere. Like we have wireless internet, we have wireless computers. We don't longer pay by the minute. And the result is that we're basically online the whole time, most of people. And that, of course, combined with the other trend, like ever heavier content and uh, more time online means way more energy use, more, way more data traffic. And then the third trend is uh, capitalism, basically. It's all this data traffic that has nothing to do with content, but about making money from that content, like advertisements, trackers, cookies, um, yeah, all this spying that, that is going on and data profiling. 
which is huge also it's a lot of traffic i mean if i look at my my visitor stats for for the website like like it, there's so much uh, going on that is like what it, it's not people visiting it's robots visiting so um those three trends we turned around so rather than a heavier website we built a lightweight website rather than being always online it depends mm -hmm. sometimes you can't reach it and also we we made it completely anonymous in the sense that there's no trackers no cookies no nothing um and yeah that results in a website that you can run on a computer the size of a mobile phone even if with high traffic mm -hmm. and everything Nice. Um, I wanted to ask about some of your the projects that you've covered and things that you've worked on. Um, do any of these see regular use? Excuse me? Sorry, I didn't get that. Uh, like regarding the projects that you've worked on um, or that you've covered at least, do you think any of these have um, potential for like regular use? And would you recommend any of them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um like taking the website as an example i think mm -hmm. that um yes it could be quite general approach to mm -hmm. to but i think more important than the fact that it's solar powered is the fact that it's lightweight so it's what i, I it's not yeah. just about websites but i think there's way too much focus on on the the supply side like there's a lot of discussion about energy sources and there's like different kind of uh, camps of people like you have those who believe in uh, wind and solar energy then you have those who believe in nuclear energy mm -hmm. then you have the ones who want to stick with fossil fuels and for me frankly i i don't really care what what i care about is that we reduce energy demand because in the end all these other types of energy sources cannot exist without fossil fuels you always come back there and you cannot build a wind turbine without fossil fuels you cannot build a solar panel without fossil fuels so they're kind of always presented as alternatives to fossil fuels but right. that's not what they are they are if used well they can be way more sustainable than it's a it's a better way to use fossil fuels like here in Spain, for example, if you put a solar panel, yes, that's definitely better than so, uh, fossil fuels. Do it in, in Sweden or the Netherlands, that's already a more difficult situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but there you have wind. So, But of course, the thing is that, um, yes, it could potentially be more like normal way of doing things, only that um, I'm killing the economy. So many of the things that I write about or that I propose, if everybody would do then, would would actually do it, then what, what about capitalism? What about economic growth? What about this whole system of uh, mm -hmm. people having a lot of money in the banks and they need to uh, invest their capital somewhere? So it's in that sense, it's yes, it's realistic, but not without uh, completely uh, sure. attacking everything else. So <clears throat> you mentioned something about <clears throat> when you're talking about the different uh, streams of traffic that, that are traveling back and forth over the internet. And you mentioned uh, robots and also like the surveillance stuff um, and that component where in a sense, like we're being mined by yeah. other actors to figure out our, what do we look at online and what are our consumption patterns and what can they figure out about us? And 
<clears throat> a lot of that gets put into AI algorithms and, you know, it can be used for control. It could be used for propaganda and, and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Also, yeah. So um, you've done at least a, one or two or a few articles imagining what like a low tech internet could look like. So I want to, I, I want you to describe that a little bit. I mean, we've had some discussions on this podcast about, um, you know, if, if, uh, you know, a, a topic that comes up, for example, some in the U.S. Uh, nowadays is about being able to be anonymous online or be able to avoid surveillance and that sort of thing. And um, so, like, what what's the potential of the low-tech Internet, the components that you've imagined, how it can work, both from a perspective of being lighter weight, sort of lighter weight on the planet, but also um, could this advance freedom could it advance more like um anonymity or privacy or things like that on the web and 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 what what would the components of a low-tech internet look like and how would it operate yeah so i think one answer to that question is actually an event i'm, I'm just setting up now here for in a few weeks in barcelona is that the the alternative because it's all about social media these days and that's uh, everything you say applies to them very well. Like that, that's where the the kind of privacy problem and addiction also. And so, but if you think about it, like because I started Low Tech Magazine before the era of social media, and so and then social media came and it kind of changed everything. But before that, it was a much nicer internet, and it was the basically the blogosphere, mm -hmm. and rather that you had a profile page on a on a social media platform you had your own blog and in the side column you had a blog role which were the blogs from your friends and the people you you followed and admired and and so on right and if you think about it this if everybody would go back to to that like rather than building your profile page on a on a social media platform you built a blog like the people did in the 90s and and you link to all your friends and then you have your reading list in your blog row because every morning you can go there see what your friends are doing or your your idols and then you publish something yourself they come to watch to watch it you can link to others in your blog post and that is actually more or less the same as what social media does but just without the whole um, platform in between and with nobody watching basically just you and the people who are involved and right it would give the same kind of yeah it would give the same advantages without all the disadvantages that come with it also the addiction that goes with it because there's not an algorithm that tries to keep you there as long as possible and sends you to i mean always the every time i have to go to youtube i end up watching the the most dangerous roads in the world or 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 horrible plane crashes and i'm like how did i get there it's not anything i would look up because I want to, it's just that the algorithm sends me there. And I think we should get rid of those things. And that's one answer, I think. In infrastructural, yeah, you could build it. I mean, you could easily make the internet so lightweight that nobody talks about its energy use anymore. But for that, I think the biggest problem has become video. Uh, I. I think it was a mistake to move the whole television to the internet because that's what created an energy use problem. Uh, 
because yeah, if you compare the, the data traffic that a video causes compared to an image, and if you then compare the image to text, and if we would go straight back to uh, only only text, then yeah, the internet would be extremely energy efficient. And I think images are like we showed on the on the solar power website, you can compress them really, really well. But with videos, it's way more complicated. So how do you make a sustainable video? Well, keep it short. Um, but in terms of uh, compression, there there are possibilities. But I mean, yeah, it also kind of porn is also a big part of that market. And I don't think people are, are <laughs> waiting for dithered porn images. Because, um, <laughs> What uh, so what you described about the so the blog model uh, when you were describing that um, and I'm I had a blog back in the day uh, it's still up somewhere I could, on Blogspot if you remember Blogspot from Google yes yes um, but uh, it kind of occurred to me that what you're describing sounds a little bit like Substack now of course Substack has features like you can add videos and all that kind of stuff so it's not made to be lightweight but the idea do you are you familiar with Substack yes but I'm not using it but uh, but I checked it out yes. Do you think okay? So, to what extent do you think Substack kind of matches up to to what you were describing as like not social media, but a place where you go and you blog and you have lists of other Substacks that you read and people respond to each other's writing? Do you think it conforms to that, or has it veered off course? Yeah, it goes in the right direction. It's just that, of course, um, that's a good first step. So, I, I definitely like it way more than than any social media. But of course, you could. I don't really know who owns Substack or or mm -hmm. what's going on behind the scenes or or what is being um, controlled or or analyzed in terms of data traffic. But there's of course now also this kind of um, trend that people also kind of try to engage people into hosting their own websites. Mm -hmm. And in terms of um, yeah, that's of course the ideal. Nobody, I mean, nobody also, there's nobody who can cut off my website. I mean, you to do that, you have to break into my house and destroy the, the, the solar panel. While, um, especially in recent years, um, if you say something that is not according to what you should say, then your website or your uh, profile may be gone. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many you, people were. You don't own it like you would a blog oh, traditionally. It. Yeah. And so also another thing what happened, even if you don't say controversial things, because when when I had my blog, basically, how do you tie people to your uh, like to make sure they come back? You have a newsletter, like an email newsletter. And it's the best decision I ever made. So I started one uh, in 2007. I'm still maintaining it. And it's also the only thing I still have, because what happened when social media came, like first it was stumble upon before it was Facebook and then Twitter and everything. So in all of these platforms, what I did was you, as any other publisher, you, you built a following. And then what happens is that in the case of StumbleUpon, by the time I had 10,000 followers, StumbleUpon disappeared. And so you lose your 10,000 followers. Then I went to Facebook. And by the time I had 15,000 followers, Facebook told me like, uh, look, if you want to reach your followers, you're going to have to pay for them. And I was like, well, get lost i'm not gonna do that and gone were the fifteen thousand followers then twitter same like okay i don't know how it's gonna end but 
yeah, I have there another 13,000 followers that uh, probably I'm also losing them. So you have all these people who now decide to build their medium and their content on platforms, which is very dangerous because there comes a time that platform or changes the rules or disappears and you you lose everything you you had built up over 10 10 15 years so um yeah yeah like I you think about you think about people who um yeah if you say something controversial or whatever and maybe people have spent years and and made 500 or 1000 youtube videos you know really carefully putting stuff together and if youtube decides that you got to go you're just done. i think you're just done i don't know that there's back i mean if you have backup copies of it i guess on your computer maybe but you could totally just you could just get wiped out. Yeah. And and the way it's been monetized where, you know, people either getting money from ads or whatever like that, like it seems very risky, like something could change and your and maybe all your content's gone. Maybe your whole income stream is gone. So it's really risky. So you feel like there are ways simply just maybe just, uh, you know, hosting your own site or your own content on your own server at home would be a way just as a kind of a firewall against all of a sudden losing all that. It's, it's definitely, it's the ultimate solution. Let's say it's just, yeah, it's of course a bit more complicated to host your own server. It's uh, if you can learn, uh, but you don't even have to go far that far. You can also just host your own block at a um, kind of old fashioned hosting company and you keep a backup. And if the hosting company goes bust and you just go take it to another hosting company, uh, but but these are really kind of basically neutral uh, organizations. They have nothing. They're not like a social media platform. Mm-hmm. So you're you you don't necessarily have to go all the way to hosting your own website because what hosting companies are basically is to do that for you. They simply host thousands of websites in the same data center. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for sure, I think. Uh, that that is I, I would advise to anyone who who has a plan to to build a business online or, or like a content production that use your own platform and and for everything like uh, because that makes sure that whatever happens to the to the platform then you're not affected by it I mean you're affected anyway but but that you don't lose everything right. Simon do you want to jump in yeah, I wanted to ask about like um, low tech magazine in general. Um, are you optimistic about the future? Like, is that is that why you do this? You think that there's like some path for people? Yeah, that's very uh, difficult question. I I get it more often um, than often I scan if there's children in the room or not. <laughs> but well, I I think my my work is very optimistic. So, and I think that's also why a lot of people like it. Um, but then at the same time, I also realized the concept, the, 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 the kind of, it's what I said earlier, like, yeah, it's all great. And, and you're all uh, happy reading this, but do you realize what it means? It, it means destroying the system as it is. And the, the, the powers that be are not to be underestimated, you know? I read a lot about history and I'm now actually, I'm in the middle ages with um, with the peasant protests and the witch hunts. And um, it's not the first time that people revolt and uh, in the end just get worse. So it's quite a challenge to, um, 
to break the power of the economic system. Right. Which uh, I also, I even don't know how, I mean, people then ask me how, but then I'm like, yeah, well, what can I say without landing in jail, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a book here, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, that kind of summarizes it pretty well. Um, but I remember putting that book on a, um, on a social media, in a social media post, and I immediately got in trouble. Yeah, you cannot associate yourself with that. It's going to hurt your reputation and so on. So it's it's difficult. Um, but I, I, I prefer to look at everything, I mean, optimistically. But if you, if, if you say like, uh, we're going to bet, are we going to make it or not? And I'm like, yeah, no, of course not. We are not <laughs> we're not going to get there. But does it? I don't know. I, I think it's worth to try to do whatever you can. And that's for me how it feels like. Um, for me, it's a bit like, well, if everything goes really wrong, uh, I did my best. I did what I could. And for me, that's important. Mm -hmm. My conscience. and uh, But it's a big fight ahead, let's say. So because of course, what happens is that this, the the the, the the economic system and the, the power the authorities are like pushing their own solutions which are very high tech and um i i think a week ago there was a report from the center of digital hate that climate denial had changed and it's no no longer denying that climate change happens but they're now focusing their efforts on um showing that high-tech sustainable solutions don't work. And then I think, whoops, that's what I'm saying for many years. So am I now suddenly a climate denier? It can go fast. <laughs> it can go fast. I mean, what happened yeah. during COVID really made me realize that uh, I have to be very careful what I write. And I mean, I'm not going to stop writing and stop. I'm not going to shut my mouth, but you just have to be very smart how you write it. Mm -hmm. Because um, one click and, and, and you're out. And yeah, you along those lines, I wanted to ask if there if, if you can think of an example of a piece that you've published that got, you know, um, a really a bigger reaction or a really negative reaction or a surprising reaction or a really good reaction. Is there something that that you've published over the years that where the response to it has surprised you or, or in some way? Yeah, with Insight, there's there's an article from 2008, which is just one year after I started, uh, which is called The Ugly Side of Solar Panels. And it basically uh, explains, at that moment, the idea was like solar panels, uh, yeah, it's 100% carbon neutral, it's free energy. It's like, and I was like, wait, I mean, you're forgetting something. You have to, you have to build them. And... It's a theme that, I mean, the article is pretty crude because it was also what was available at that time, but the response was overwhelming and overwhelmed. I, I mean, I got insulted. I got people threatened me. Uh, people called me a neo-Nazi. And all I said was like, I mean, you can, Jeez. I mean, I'm running my apartment and my website on solar. So I'm obviously right. not against solar, but just at that point in history in 2008, saying that solar panels may not be as sustainable as they look, was heresy and yeah the good thing of course now you you can these things have become commonplace but um that was something that 
really surprised me. People asking me to take this article off the internet. Yeah, so I learned if you read that piece, you also see I'm, I'm like much, I got 15 years later, I became a much better writer. And, and in say, when I want, when I say something that I know is controversial, I know how to kind of sell it better and without hurting people too much. And that's, that's important. And I, I think it's very important. Actually, I see it often with people that they are, um, kind of very aggressive attacking the other side and that's not a way to to make other people understand your position um so i became much more um open to yeah i mean how you say uh, to compromise and to to see the the what I mean, part of it is also what what has always uh, fascinated me is that the, the readers of Low Tech magazine are not really don't have a political color. It's a bit of everything, mm -hmm. and that I find hopeful in a sense that we are in the age of polarization where one side of humanity hates the other, and but they're both reading Low Tech magazine, so there is something that binds all these unhappy people on both sides of the political right. spectrum. And so I am very interested in what that is. I'm trying to, to figure it out and, and how we can. Um, I mean, I see followers of me on Twitter that are uh, kind of politically opposites of each other. And if they would if they would meet, they would probably kill each other. And they're both reading and and promoting low tech magazines. It's really weird to see. Hmm. Um, so the, the libertarian and the socialist. And, like mm -hmm. they hate the others, but they're both reading the same stuff. Sorry, I got a bit far now. Maybe no, that's <laughs> this is great, man. This is really great. Um, I, I uh, Simon, I know I'm kind of hogging the conversation. No. Uh, I want to. I have a couple more things, and and I'll try to talk less. But um, <clears throat> so you have a you have another site too, kind of an adjacent project to Low Tech Magazine called No Tech Magazine. Yeah. So so why don't you explain No Tech Magazine? And deflect the uh, the inevitable criticism that you're a luddite and you're completely against technology. <laughs> At the same time, <laughs> no, um, yeah, no tech. I of course, no tech magazine is um, basically as the sister or the brother side of of low tech magazine, and the difference is or or should have been because it kind of got messed up a bit, but. That low tech magazine is the content that I make, like the articles I write myself. And then on no tech magazine, I I link to what others write or feel, make movies or whatever. That kind of is related to what I'm saying. Like people who are uh, saying because I'm not the only one being critical of technology. So there's there's a lot of others. Um, so that's basically the difference. And then yeah, essentially. The child had to have a name, and I think No Tech Magazine is an even better name than than Low Tech Magazine because you can kind of interpret it in different ways. It's it's not a tech magazine or it's a no tech magazine, or but so it's not really more than than that. Actually, the children have to have a name, and now like Low Tech uh, in France, for example, has become like a, a hype, and 
and I'm actually thinking to 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 change the low tech magazine to the no tech magazine because they don't really all get it very well and it becomes a kind of lifestyle thing I mean not all of them there's there's good good uh, writing also but a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon of low tech in France because it's trendy and then they kind of it becomes its own ecos, uh, tech techno solution in the sense that you um, if you have a solar cooker and a hot water bottle then you're cool and you're sustainable and uh, yeah no it's, it's more than that there's a whole political uh, uh, thing it's 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 a political thing i mean sustainability is not about uh, lifestyle and and showing that you're different from the others so am I a Luddite? Not at all, because I'm obviously fascinated by technology, always have been, always have loved to build stuff. And uh, it's just that um, I'm very unhappy with how technology evolves. And I think most people are, because we all know the, the thing that our, our laptop from 10 or 15 years ago lasted forever until it could not keep up with, with the heavier websites I was talking about earlier. Uh, and if you buy a laptop now, you cannot even change your battery anymore because it's glued inside and it doesn't last that long. And what it goes for any product uh, and services, everything just falls apart. And so, um, yeah, what what is happening? And it's not actually a technological problem. It's an economical problem. Why do we now have laptops that break after three years? Because the economic growth requires us to to uh, buy a new laptop every three years and not work on one from uh, 2011 <laughs> or 2010, this one. And the one that we are Skyping, um, chatting on is from 2012. That's not what uh, what capitalism wants, you know, that you keep working with the same computer for, for 15 years. And I, I noticed also when I started Low Tech Magazine in 2007, people, indeed called me Luddites, uh, insulted me. Uh, that kind of don't, doesn't happen anymore, very rarely. So I think that the smartphone plays an important role in that. It's such a um, kind of, it has taken such a central part in people's life and like um, people realize that they're addicted. Um, I recently, some months ago, I, I did a class here in, in a school in Barcelona. I asked all these teenagers like, uh, What's your what's your addiction on the internet? And none of them escapes from that. So I think the smartphone made people is an important technology in the in people becoming more critical about technology and taking people like me more seriously because it's very invasive uh, technology. It has changed everything. But in in I'm I'm fine with the label of a of a luddite, by the way their their um yeah their their fight was was legit it was uh they were fighting for something that we should be fighting for also and and often there's like this caricature of them that they are like just destroyed machines but it's much more than that it's about uh, the power structure behind this machinery so you kind of hinted towards an optimistic note we always try to pull out the optimism notes on this podcast so I wonder what you think about this. So you just highlighted how, yeah, you know, you first started writing and you criticized solar and there was this huge backlash. 
you know, and now maybe we're starting to see people are a bit more skeptical about the advance of technology that the smartphone has, you know, become such a ubiquitous presence in our lives that people are recognizing that they're addicted to these things. And with social media, for example, I mean, how many, how much of the time can you hear someone saying something like, you know, I feel, I just feel bad about myself. I go on Twitter and I'm on there for half an hour and I feel bad about myself. You know, it's like, there's so much arguing, like you're saying, you have the libertarians and the socialists trying to kill each other and all this kind of stuff. So do you think that maybe the way out of this crisis is through it in the sense that we just keep going with heavier internet and more technology and more connectivity and more smartphones and more video games and more porn and more negative energy on social media. And eventually we're just kind of going to become sick of it. And we're going to naturally say like, you know, to kind of back away or something like that. Can you see a ray of hope in that, in that it kind of becomes worse, but then it gets better. Yeah, that's an optimistic view. I think the problem is that, I mean, I think my own experience here ex explain, makes it pretty clear. So I don't have a smartphone. Um, so why? Because, I, of course, I am very much connected already when I'm sitting here at my desk. And so I want to keep my sanity and I want to especially keep my um, my capacity of reading books, which I notice that everyone else has lost. So um, from the moment I leave the door, I'm not connected. The problem is that if the rest of the world um, goes the other direction, it becomes harder and harder. Like the when I get to know someone and then I give my phone, I have to say, okay, look, I don't have WhatsApp. I'm not connected. I do have Telegram, but it's on my laptop. So if I talk to you on Telegram, it means that I'm home. If you then send me a message when I'm already on the way to the meeting, don't send a message through Telegram. Then you have to send me an SMS because otherwise I won't. So it's it gets really complicated to live as someone without connection in a connected world. And then uh, when I go buy a train ticket in Belgium, I have to pay seven euro extra because I don't have a smartphone because yeah, I need to buy it on the, if I, because, well, it's a peculiar situation, but I travel a lot between Antwerp and Rotterdam if I'm there. And Rotterdam is outside Belgium, so you cannot order it in the machine, the ticket machine. So you have to go to the counter with a human, and then they charge you seven euro extra. So, yeah, with a smartphone, I could solve that. So I pay more. I um, I miss. Um, yeah, not all people are willing to um, send me an SMS, or they go like, okay, we find some other friends. So you kind of isolate yourself from the re the rest of the world. And if you're fine with that, well, then okay. But um, it's definitely not easy. So we would all have to get sick of it at the same time. That would uh, help a lot. Um, I hope so. I mean, I, I solved it like behind my computer screen is a wall of books. And they're all books I want to read. And so whenever, because of course I can escape, I'm not connected when I'm outside and then I observe life, I talk to people, I do so many things that I watch people watching their smartphones. But when I'm inside, I have the same problem as anyone else. I'm writing and there's constant this kind of urge to check something. Like, And there's always something to check. I mean, especially when you have your website, I can check my book sales, I can check my, um, my traffic, 
I can see the social media, then what is something on the news and so on and so on. And then by the time you did the last one, you can start again. So that's why I, I have this wall of books behind my screen that uh, from the moment I feel this urge comes, I take a book and I start reading. And it gives me so much more than than what I find on the screen. But still, it's a constant fight and, and I'm not immune to it. This um, And it's, of course, designed to be addictive. And that is also where uh, kind of a blogosphere or like for with the students here in Barcelona, uh, one group, what they did was they designed the Instagram that is totally the opposite of being addictive. It's as boring as you can imagine it. And it was great because it was like black and white pictures. The, the, the feed and the, the news feed ended pretty quickly. And I was like, okay, two minutes and you've seen it and you go on with your life. So it's not that you cannot, that these things are inherently wrong. I think there's also something beautiful in being able to be connected with people who are not necessarily in your neighborhood or also kind of uh, makes people more open-minded and, and you can find people who are interested in the same uh, stuff like you and the problem is that there are corporations in between that want you to consume and be online longer than is healthy for you. Um, so I think that I'm definitely not against technology, but more about who's deciding how it evolves. Simon? Yeah. Um... I had a question about your like your bike based projects on the website. I'm wondering about? if you see like your bike based projects. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry, it's getting dark here, but I, ah, I no problem. <laughs> no, um, do you do you see potential for any of those to end up as like a household appliance for people that the are say interested in generating their own energy? Yeah, that's uh, this whole topic of human power has. Uh, I, I'm someone who cycles a lot. Like I cycle like regularly, quite distances that people are like, "What? Are you crazy?" But then I'm like, "Well, it's not that hard. I'm. It's not like working in the field all day." And and so logically, um, the idea of of uh, building um, um, a bike generator to produce energy kind of. I always wanted to do it. And again, it's an intern who, who got me there. It's always other people who, who get me on the, those pots. And so we built this bike generator and actually became part of my solar system here. And the great thing is like in itself, to answer your question, um, uh, um, powering your household with human power or modern civilization with human power, which is topic of an art project I'm doing, the human power plant. That's definitely not the solution. I mean, it's great as an artwork, but that's not what we want. And we don't want to go back to slavery on top of that. But what is really interesting in a practical sense about uh, human power is that it is a great backup for off-grid solar uh, installation. Because um, like I explained earlier, like most when the website or my uh, apartment goes offline, that's always in winter when it's usually also cold. And I don't have heating, obviously. So then you just go sit on the bike. You add power to the battery because there's not enough sun. And you keep yourself warm. 
And then if you look to summer, in the summer, it's way too hot, especially here, to, to be on your bike generator. But you also don't need to because the sun shines enough. So you have the, all the, um, the energy from the solar system. And that means that you actually, by integrating a human-powered uh, backup energy source in your solar system, you can further downsize the battery. Because on the days that, that it's cloudy, you just sit on this bike for one, two hours, and um, that's, uh, that's enough to have light for the rest of the evening. And so I could also do it with the website uh, that... Um, yeah, if, if I see it's going down and I just have a lot of traffic, I could say, like, I connect the bike to the website uh, system and, and I just power it uh, myself when I'm home, at least. So in that sense, uh, I think human power is especially great for making people aware of their energy demand, which is the big missing element in the discussion about the energy transition. It's always about energy supply. It's never about energy demand. But if you have to power your own uh, energy use, then of course you have immediately a connection be between what you want and what you have to do for it. And that means that you're gonna think twice about what you need. So you're not gonna watch a movie by yourself on a flat screen television. You either gonna watch it on your smartphone or you're gonna invite all the neighbors to do it together and change place on the bike. Mm -hmm. And then, and that is really what human power is, uh, is doing, uh, but on the practical side, it really works well with as a backup source because humans are energy sources, but also like fossil fuels, we're kind of uh, dispatchable. So we we're energy storage also at the same time. Because everyone asks me when they see the bike, can you charge a battery? Yes, of course you can, but you are the battery because you can go sit on the bike whenever you need it. So whenever you need the power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to uh, highlight that you have published now several books. I'm not sure how many. I think I have two of your books where you've taken seg – I think I have a couple where it was just basically the articles from the website for a certain set of years and another set of years. Yeah. But you also now have some topical books. You want to talk a bit about your publishing? Yeah, so the books are um, – have kind of several, um, there's several reasons why we got books first. Yeah, the website is not always online. So then the books are, of course, compared to the internet, uh, it's hard to be the book. Uh, you can read it whenever you want. You don't need uh, energy, electricity, the internet. Um, you can read it in the sun. Um, so it's hard to beat that. And a second reason is to preserve the content of a low-tech magazine in the long term because, yeah, I'm not always going to be here and the website one day will also be gone. So um, in that sense, that's also what a book does very good. And then another reason was actually how to finance the the website because, um, yeah, if, if nothing of money comes in, I, I, I also need to pay the rent. Uh, so... And in the early days before the solar power website, it was partly advertising from like the Google systems. And that's problematic for uh, many reasons already. Um, but it, when we started designing the solar power website, it became pretty much uh, very quickly clear that it's even impossible to, it would destroy the whole concept of the website because you need, Google systems are uh, tracking visitors and are using a lot of energy. So 
that would not work. So I had to find another way to um, to finance the, the writing. And I'm very happy that now it is book sales rather than advertising, because then you're basically also part of the problem. Um, so I that's now how it works, basically, that the books are financing the, the website. And so indeed, we did uh, three chronological volumes since 2007. So it's a lot of big archive. And then one book with all the comments, like 3000 comments. And then uh, late last year, we started um, kind of republishing the, the whole archive, but then not chronologically, but thematically. Uh, because the books, as they are, the chronological books, yeah, it's a series. It's quite a lot. It's quite an investment also. And not, of course, not everyone who reads Low Tech Magazine is necessarily interested in all the topics. So there's some people like we have now a lot of people who are interested in uh, sustainable websites, uh, others in transport and so on. So that's why we now start um, publishing books that are more about themes that people that are more affordable that people can buy that are uh, only interested in that topic or people who want to give it to someone uh, as an introduction to low-tech magazine and so yeah it works pretty pretty well and um, there will be more they're, books they're like print on demand or something or you have a service you just upload a file of the articles and then and then does it like if i go on today and i order one does that send a signal to then okay print this volume and ship or how does or is there an inventory or how does it work? No, it's print on demand. So the um, one of the problems, the like the in the normal book publishing, what happens is that you have to decide how many books you're gonna print. Say we're gonna print three thousand, and then you only sell one thousand, and then what you do with these two thousand others? Well, they are being destroyed. So. It's not a very sustainable way of um, of making books, and print-on-demand avoids that. So you only print when someone orders. And that's why it takes a bit longer, because when you order a book, then uh, the printer uh, gets like, yeah, the, the message that they need to print it, and then they send it to you. Of course, it's not ideal. I would, for example, I don't have a choice to uh, select um, sustainable paper, like recycled paper. I cannot do that. So it's not the perfect solution. But I think uh, the fact also I could simply not have done this without print on demand. I, it's like if I have to print thousand uh, copies of every book um, and then wait, I don't know how many years before they're sold, I'm, I'm dead. You know, mm -hmm. I cannot survive. So the downside of print on demand is that the cost of a book is very high. Uh, so if you want to sell it to bookstores or something, forget it because they, for them, it's way too expensive. But for now, it's the only way and I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, but it may change in the future. I don't know. And yeah, I, I kind of, I think it fits the topic also that there is a physical uh, version of low tech magazine. The only problem that, like, yeah, now that we built sustainable websites, such a lightweight website, what about books? So that's the answer I, a question I get on talks, like you made a sustainable website, but is then the book, how sustainable is that? 
And that's now a project we're working on to uh, actually also uh, compress the book, not just uh, the website, but oh. kind of make a um, way more sustainable version of the book because I, I would like to limit uh, the number of trees that get killed in the name of low-tech magazine. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, do you have any more? I have one question I'll say to you. No, go for it. App, but do you have something? Oh, I'm good. Cool. Answered all my questions. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, well, before we wrap, I just wa uh, wanted to ask, so you hinted a little bit there about a project to figure out how to compress the book and make it a bit lighter weight. Um, what, 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 what other stuff you have coming up? Is there thing you want to highlight? Are there new topics that people can look forward to or what, what's your next endeavor? Um, well, it's, um, Two years ago, I got, as I said earlier, a new intern, uh, Marie Verde from France. And um, after the internship, she just stayed. So she's now uh, became my most important collaborator. And she's very much focused on do-it-yourself and manuals. And so you saw her work in the, in the solar manual also. And one of the challenges for me is always, like, especially in the last years when so many things on, like in the early days, I published way more articles than I do now because I only had to write. And I mean, I didn't do anything else. The, but now, of course, because of the, the website has become successful and there's all these side projects, Human Power Plant, uh, the website and so on, the books. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to write. And I would love to go back to a higher rhythm of publishing articles like the, what I've been doing for many years. And so the plan is that Marie kind of uh, focuses on the whole do-it-yourself part and I go back to really writing articles. Because I also noticed um, that I talked to a lot of young uh, makers like uh, lately and yeah, this is a generation that basically grew up with Low Tech Magazine. So they were already, already reading it when they were 15 or something and they they are way further than I am now. Like I feel that it's, I can, I can trust the whole uh, development of prototypes in, into the hands of these people that, that um, for them, they have internalized the, the low tech approach and they're building things that are way better than, than I do. So my, the plan is to, what I hope to uh, promise to the readers is again, more articles. And at the same time, more do-it-yourself projects but they will be mostly made by others um and then That's this awesome. combination will will be more the new face of low-tech magazine it's a trend that already was going on but so for for our listeners if uh are there opportunities then to kind of to collaborate or to uh be an intern or or if someone has a specialty in some topic that overlaps do you, do you think that there's opportunities to to collaborate on things? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, some months ago, uh, we received basically um, a, a finished uh, article with images and everything and videos uh, about um, a motorcycle engineer in the US, Andy, who, who built this human-powered air compressor for his motorcycle workshop. Yeah, and this is great. I mean, that's that's. I would love to see more of these things um, because what Low Tech Magazine can offer is a platform of people who love to read about your inventions and the stuff you built, and will give, will comment on that, will try to help you improve it. Uh, so, 
yeah, this is something that I'm very much open to. That um, I don't think I should be the only one. I mean, Low Tech Magazine should take more and more people on board who um, who present their projects. So if you build something that you think uh, really fits the philosophy of the magazine, um, yeah, feel free to uh, to send it over. And... Cool. Well, and the same for writing. It's it's a bit harder. I I, I find uh, until now I have not find found anyone who who is a better writer than I am. I found better builders, but not better writers yet. But I hope that will also one day happen. Mm. And um, because, of course, as a if just one guy writing and and doing all the rest is um, is a bit difficult to to grow the magazine. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, I'm totally in the dark. I see. So that's okay. It's fitting. Yeah, the light button is too far away. <laughs> yeah, but your but your computer is still broadcasting. You know, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, because this one is not on the solar, by the way. Oh, okay. it's a computer I only use for for uh, video chats. Okay, and it has no battery, so it's um it's a bit tricky to run on the solar. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, this has been super cool. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Uh, I love your project. I think it's so cool and it's so important. Um, the philosophy behind it, and you know, I always I'm always really eager when I see a new article has been posted or emailed out. So uh, yeah, well, I guess with that, we'll wrap up and uh, thanks again. So lowtechmagazine.com. Yeah. Right on. Well, everybody check it out if you haven't. It's really cool. And we'll see you next time.